Well, good morning, church. Great to be back with you this morning as we continue our series, Kingdom Economics. Well, it was a day that many of us will never forget. October 13th, 2010. Just 69 days earlier, a significant cave-in at the Golden Copper Mine in San Jose, Chile, left 33 Chilean miners trapped 2,300 feet below the surface. Now we would find in the days and weeks ahead that this mine had a bit of a troubled history. Literally in the last 22 years leading up to this moment, eight people had died at this mine site. Yet in this moment, it looked like it would be the most tragic moment in the mine's troubled history. Immediately, the search and rescue workers were brought in to see if anyone could survive the cave-in. Eight boreholes were drilled into the mine to see if they could make contact with anyone who might have survived. And 17 days into search and rescue, on one of the drill bits that were drilled into the, to the borehole, in bright red letters was written this message, we are well in the shelter, signed the 33. You can imagine the joy and euphoria that broke out at the mine site to think that 33 people had survived the cave-in. And now the question became, how are we going to go and get these guys without everything falling in on them? Literally every resource in the country of Chile was being leveraged to rescue the miners. Resources all over the world. Here in the U.S., NASA got involved to figure out how in the world can we go down and design something to bring these guys up without the whole thing caving in. And 69 days into that journey, the first miner was pulled back above the surface. It was one of those moments that it was like the whole world stopped and watched like every television was tuned in. And I'll never forget watching the first miner come back up. He, he kissed the ground, he hugged his relatives, he thanked God, and it was one of those moments, if you were watching it on, on television, it just felt good to be alive. It felt great to be a human being, to think that we could figure out how to innovate and strategize to rescue these guys. And one by one, for the next 24 to 48 hours, in about 90-minute intervals, each miner was brought back above the surface. When the 33rd miner was brought back above the surface, the paramedics who had gone down to check on the guys rolled out a banner that said, Mission Accomplished. And again, it was just one of those moments where it felt great to be a human being, that we could figure out how to do this. The guys began to tell their story. They were on the front page of the newspapers and on the late night talk shows. They talked about what it was like to go 48 hours at a time with one spoonful of tuna, what it was like to live underneath the surface of the earth for that long and we leaned into their stories, but 
As time began to move on, eventually their stories fell out of the headlines, off the front page, off the blog sites, beyond the news, and really out of the news altogether. A year later, CNN went back to check on the miners to see how they were doing. And some of them were doing okay, but many of them were struggling. One year later, when CNN went back to check on them, as you can imagine, several of them were dealing with panic and anxiety disorders. There's one guy who had been arrested for domestic violence. There was another guy who was building a wall around his house, and he had no idea why he was doing it. And the question that CNN raised one year later was, do the miners need a second rescue? Because even though they had been rescued from death, what they were struggling with was adjusting back into life. And I want to start there with that picture because I think it paints a picture of a reality that you and I often find ourselves in spiritually. That as Christians, we know how to be rescued from death, but do we really know how to adjust into life? Now, the reason I know this is a struggle for you and I today is because I know lots of Christians today who know how to be forgiven, but very few Christians who know how to live free. In other words, oftentimes as Christians, our lives look the exact same as anyone else living in the world. It's just that ours has a big, I'm sorry at the end of it. And part of what the gospel does is, yes, it does forgive me of my sin, but it also sets me free. When I talk about freedom, I'm not talking about the ability to do anything you want to do. That's not freedom. If freedom's the ability to do anything you want to do, I know a lot of people who are doing anything they want to do that find themselves in incredible captivity. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you wanted to. Freedom is the capability to become who you were always destined to be. And maybe there's no place that we struggle with this more than with our finances. How do we live free in our finances in a way that actually brings the kingdom with us rather than keeps the kingdom from us? So this morning I wanna to talk to you about that a little bit and. Um, Gary and Pierce have set the stage the last two weeks, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16. I'm gonna wrap up our series here on kingdom economics, and I, I wanna bring you to a passage of scripture um, that honestly is one of the most difficult and debated passages in the entire Bible. Um, in the lectionary, this passage of scripture appears, uh, I think, on, on what, what is called Associate Pastor Sunday. In other words, the senior pastor's out of town all the time when this text is up, um, and the associate pastor has to handle it. That's not what happened here. I actually chose this passage of scripture, uh, but it's one that I've been looking at for 30 years, and quite frankly, it's still disturbing me. So I wanna invite you into the disturbance this morning, and it's a, it's a story that Jesus tells. It's a parable. Chapter 16, verse one, here's what the way the scripture uh, reads. It says, he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against the man that he was wasting, you might want to circle that word, wasting his possessions. 
And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Says my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. Then verse four, I've decided, in the Greek it's almost like light bulb moment. Bing. I've decided what I'll do so that when I am removed from the management, people will receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Here's the big verse. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own than uh, their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful very little is faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will you give, who will give you, you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Do you get the picture there? It's a little bit of a disturbing reality. It's a, it's a dark picture. Story opens and there is a manager that is wasting his master's funds. That word, wasting, is the same word that's used a chapter earlier to talk about the prodigal son, wasting his dad's resources. What we have here is the story of the prodigal manager. And so he's wasting the master's money and this waste isn't just threatening him. You gotta imagine, this is a communal society. The ma manager here, the picture here is, it's the big company in town, and so this wasteful spending is actually putting the whole community at risk. And so people start to come back to the master and just say, hey, your manager is wasting all this money and we're all at risk. And so the, 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 the scripture says that the master summons the manager in to give an account. He says, give me account of the way you're stewarding things. And if you hear the story here, the manager is incredibly silent. It's almost like he says, I've got no excuses and I've got no defense. I've been caught red-handed. The master says, all right, you're fired. But there is a moment of mercy because he opens up a window of time for the steward to react before everyone knows that he's fired. He says, go get your affairs in order. And, and so the, the, the manager here is thinking, what, what am I gonna do? I, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too proud to beg. Boom, light bulb moment. I know what I'll do. And so he summons in. The same way he's been summoned in by the master, he summons in the debtors 
And you gotta just read it because this is a manager who's doing everything but managing. He's wasting the possessions. He calls the guys in and says, how much do you owe? He's the manager, he should know. They're saying, no, I owe 100. He says, all right, cut it to to 50. I I, I owe 100, all right, cut it to 80. He's thinking, if if I leverage off the generosity of my master, then as I relieve these debts, there'll be people to look after me. And the master hears what he's done. And it's almost like he looks at him with a little wink and said, you got me. Because this guy's been living in a win-lose economy. He's the only one been winning and everyone's been losing, but he stumbles in this moment into a win-win-win economy. He wins because he's relieving debts and he's gonna have a place for people to look after him. The debtors win because their debts are beginning to be relieved and the master wins because he's now known as a generous man, but he kind of tricks the master. He puts the master in a weird place because if the master were to say, well, this guy doesn't have authority to do that, the master would look stingy. And so the master kind of winks at him and says, you got me, well played, sir, well played. And it's right here that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey guys, I want you to pay attention to this because there's something that you need to learn to be the kinds of disciples that I want to develop. There's something about the kingdom economy that you need to learn here. But honestly, what are we to do with this little story? I mean, we we gotta remember that this is a parable, not an allegory. An allegory, you read the story and there's a one-to-one correlation between the person in the story and someone outside the story. And there are certain parables that do have more, you know, allegoric, Overtones. In some ways, Jesus sometimes uses the idea of allegory to interpret parables, but not every parable is an allegory. In other words, not every time is the master a one-to-one correlation to God in the parable. And not every time should we do exactly what the stewards do. In other words, the parable of the unjust judge is not a picture of who God is. It's actually the exact opposite. And the master here is not a picture of God. It's not that God doesn't know what's going on with the resources. But it's in this story. Warren Willsby says that parables start as a picture. They're just a picture of reality. It's just a story about life. But if you'll keep looking at it, that picture will become a mirror. It'll start to speak into your own life. You'll begin to see yourself. It's just a story of a guy going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Oh, it's a mirror when I start saying, am I the priest, am I the Levite, am I the good Samaritan? Now it's doing diagnostic work in me. But Worsby would say, the parable hasn't done its work until that picture becomes, uh, 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 that picture becomes a, win- a mirror and that mirror becomes a window. So now you look out through it and you start to see everything differently. This morning, I want us to step into the picture mirror window reality because I think this parable is opening up a picture of kingdom that not only will help us diagnose some things in our life, if we look through it, will help us see everything different. So where do we start? Well, number one, I think we gotta start with this story by acknowledging that there is so much wrong with it. I mean, literally, the steward, the manager, is not a good servant. He's wasting the master's resources. Not only that, the debts are exorbitant. 
The debts are crushing the people. The manager, at best, is self-absorbed, at worst, narcissistic, just looking out for his own interest. His motives are at best suspect, at worst deceitful. Notice he calls them in one by one because he doesn't want anyone to be able to tell the other person what's happening. It's, it's, there's a sense of deceit there. In other words, it's just a picture of the way that business is done many times today. But in the middle of this, in the middle of all that is wrong, there are some things that are being set right for all the wrong reasons. Debts are being relieved. Friendship is created. A new economy emerges. A preferred future is entered into. And one single truth is revealed. I've been looking at this parable for 30 years. If I had to boil it down to one big thought to put into your mind today, especially when it comes to kingdom economics, here, here, here's the big thought for today. Your, my, our standard of living tomorrow is directly related to our standard of giving today. Let me say that again. Your, my, our standard of living tomorrow is directly related to our standard of giving today. This is not the way that I usually like to think about things. Normally what I wanna think about is, let me get my standard of living right, and then once I get my standard of living right, then I'll talk about my giving. But Jesus is challenging us. He says, you wanna create a better standard of living tomorrow, start with a better standard of giving today. See, the problem when I start with my standard of living is it doesn't matter how much I make, if I even make more than I did last year, you know what I need? I need more. It's never quite enough. There's always one more bill. There's always one more thing that I think I need. And if I'm not careful, I'll spend my entire life trying to rule and reign over my standard of living and never, ever get to giving. And Jesus says, you wanna raise your standard of living? You want a better tomorrow? You wanna raise your standard of living? Start today by raising your standard of giving. Now let me be clear, this is not a health, wealth, prosperity kind of gospel. It's not sow a seed into this ministry and tomorrow you'll have a whole bunch of money in your bank account. No, no, this is way more than about finances. This is about relationships, about time and resources, saying if you want a better life tomorrow, you start by the posture that you're living life with today. Start with giving and that giving, this is what the servant does. He doesn't do it in all the right ways, but he starts by giving and when he does, he releases something different into the economy. Not only for his best interest, but the people around him. So th this morning, I, I wanna just step into this and hear this again. Because I think what Jesus does here is he, there, there's five challenges that Jesus gives us. And, and here's the deal. If you'll just take one of these challenges, it will, it will change your life. If you have the audacity to take all, follow, all, all five of them, it will turn your life upside down. At least it is, at least it is for mine. 
So five challenges today that I want us to think about as we, as we think about kingdom economics, and so many of them, Gary and Piers have laid the foundation for, and I wanna step on the foundation that they built. Here's the first one, the first challenge. The first challenge that Jesus gives us here is a different way of learning. This kind of comes indirectly from the text. He challenges us with a different way of learning. If this passage of scripture were written or told today, there's no way that our cancel culture would let it stand. There's so much wrong with this guy, there's no way that we would ever learn from him because in cancel culture, here's what we believe. We believe if I disagree with anything about a person that I can't learn anything from them. And so if we have any disagreements, I need to cancel you and just say nothing good could be learned from you and therefore I don't have to deal with you. This is reverse cancel culture. This guy should be canceled. Yet Jesus raises him up to his disciples and says, actually, there's something important for you to learn here, guys. Don't miss this because there's so much wrong. Let me show you what's right here. See, the problem with cancel culture is not just that it cripples your learning because you'll only learn from a certain group of people, but it also paralyzes your leading. When cancel culture takes over, it's not just that you can't learn, it's that you're afraid to lead because you begin to think, I gotta be right at everything in order to lead at anything. Or even worse, when you start leading, you start to believe you're right at everything. Nothing creates more toxicity than arrogance and learning coming together. Maybe the reason we have such a toxic leadership culture is because that's what cancel culture creates. The only people who will dare to lead are the people who think they're right on everything and they're not right on everything, but they bring with it the toxicity to that leadership where they think they have to be. And yet Jesus is always doing something different. He's creating humble learners and servant leaders. Now, even if you don't agree with the premise of this, I know you've experienced this. Uh, when's the last time you heard God speak in the most bizarre circumstance? Like, maybe you were at a Coldplay concert and you found yourself worshiping all of a sudden. You're like, how did this happen? Or maybe you're riding down the road and you turned on Jimmy Buffett or Khalid and you're riding down the road and next thing you know, you, you think you're hearing God speak in this moment. An unlikely source, right? Or, or maybe you are in your college classroom and you've got a professor that's talking about biology and he's an, you know, uh, believes in evolution and yet somewhere even in his presentation, you are stunned by the creative genius of God. God loves to reveal himself in some of the strangest places. And Jesus says, don't dismiss this guy. There's something for us to learn. There's a different way of learning. Number two, not just a different way of learning, a better way of living. Do you know it's possible to waste your life? It's possible to spend all of your resources just trying to make yourself more comfortable. This is what Gary was getting at last week when he talks about, you know, you can spend your life just trying to get more, getting all you can and canning all that you get, and you and I can spend our life just trying to get, get, get. 
And yet this parable challenges us differently. It says, you want a better way of life? It's not about what you get. It's about the way you give. I gotta tell you, I was a business management major long before I got into ministry. So when I'm looking at life, to be honest with you, here's the way that I wanna live my life. I wanna live so strategically that I don't need provision from anyone. But what this parable does is it won't let me do that because God is inviting me to live so generously that he will have to be my provider. Did you get that? I wanna live so strategically that I don't need provision. God wants me to live so generously that he has to become my provider. What if you lived your life so generously that all the things that we just sang about had to be true about God? Because if they weren't, you were gonna be out on an edge, over leveraged by your generosity. That's the invitation that I feel God inviting us into. Don't just live so strategically that you don't need provision. Live so generously that God has to become your provider. If you, don't, if you don't receive it from me, receive it from Anne Frank. Anne Frank said it this way. She said, no one has ever gone poor by giving. Think about it. Do you know anyone who has gone poor because they're giving? You don't know anyone who's been poor because they gave. She said, in fact, it is in giving that we find the greatest gift. If you don't hear from Jesus and you won't hear it from Anne Frank, maybe you'll hear it from the business world because it turns out giving is good business. You can do a little Google search on giving being good business. You'll find hundreds of articles of organizations who say, you know, if we're gonna create a new economy, someone's gotta be the first giver. An organization stepping in saying, man, it looks like we're losing money, but really we're gaining money because someone's gotta initiate giving. If you won't hear it from the business world, hear it from the health world, because turns out giving is good for your health. The people who are generous live longer. There's a sense that you become more alive. And if you won't hear it there, maybe as a parent, you could at least recognize that you, this is the way you feel at Christmas, right? Because when you're a kid, it's all about getting. But when you're a parent, at least when you're a dad, you're getting no gifts at Christmas. You know that. I mean, literally, we always get stuff for the kids, and me and Kim used to always do the same deal. We said, hey, we're not getting each other anything for Christmas. But what that really means is I still get her something for Christmas. And so for a dad, everyone else has got gifts, and you got nothing. But, but, but here, those of you that are dads, you know there is nothing that gives you joy like watching one of your kids open a gift that you've provided for them that's exactly what they want. Turns out a better way of living starts with giving. A different way of learning, a better way of living. Number three, a divergent economy to be invested in. This is where Gary's message and Pierce's message come together. Pierce is about economy and investment in regard to the parable of the talents. Gary's talking about generosity and giving. This is about what we're talking about. We talk about being a 5G disciple. This generosity is the fourth G because giving starts to actually become investing because a divergent economy emerges through giving. Notice, 
as this guy starts to leverage the generosity of the master. And by the way, it's always easier to be generous on the corporate card, right? So he's leveraging the corporate card of the master. But in that, a whole new economy is being created. And the economy that's being created is a give and receive economy. So he's giving to the debtors and he's hoping then that as the debtors receive, they'll give back to him. So again, like Gary was talking about last night, nothing wrong with receiving. In fact, the economy of Genesis chapter one and two is a give-receive economy where God is the first giver. Literally, the words of Genesis chapter one and two, God comes to Adam and Eve, he says, I give you every seed-bearing tree for plant, or a tree for food. God's the first giver, and the first thing he says is, I'm giving to you. And the the posture of the garden is that God gives and man receives, but then man is invited to give back to God obedience and worship so that God can receive something. And Genesis chapter one and two is a give-receive economy, and as God is giving and man is receiving and man is receiving and man is giving and God is receiving, there's an abundance where Eden has everything that is necessary for multiplication and an idea that if they would have continued that, Eden literally provides the seed bank for Eden to break out all over the world. But in the middle of the give-receive economy, In Genesis chapter three, man and woman take and eat. So the give, receive economy is interrupted by a take and eat economy. And when the take, eat, and eat economy intersects the give, receive economy, there is a brokenness that emerges. And church, you and I, live in the collateral damage of these two economies in competition, or should I say, at war with one another in the culture that we find ourselves. And and if you and I aren't careful, we're gonna take, this is what Gary was talking about last night, or last week, we're gonna take what God means to give and receive, and we're gonna take and eat, and that's gonna create more brokenness. I know you feel this. We're here in Dallas, Fort Worth. This is Richardson, Texas. I know you feel the urgency of trying to keep up with the Joneses. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. It feels like I'm always behind. In other words, just kind of give you a picture. It's like life is a big game of spoons. You guys remember the spoons game? You know, and if in case you don't know how the spoons game work, you take spoons and there's people sitting around a table. There's always one less spoon than people sitting around the table. And, and then you take a, a, a sack of cards and you pass out, everyone gets four and you're trying to build four of a kind. And so the person who's sitting next to the dealer, they pick up a fifth card and if it helps them, they hold on to it and they discard something that's in their hand. If not, they just pass it on. And so there's a bit of urgency that starts happening as cards get passed around the table. And the idea is that you're trying to be the first person to get four of a kind because when you get four of a kind, you grab a spoon and when you do, it sends just an uproar around the table for everyone trying to get a spoon, right? If you haven't played spoons, I know you played musical chairs where there's always one less chair than people and you're walking around, the music's playing, it's getting urgent, then all of a sudden the music stops and and you're looking for a chair. I wonder how much time and energy and resources in my life 
I'm using to just make sure I got a spoon or I just got a chair. Because the take and eat economy is one, I gotta look out for myself because there's not enough spoons to go around, so I gotta make sure I get a spoon. There's not enough chairs, so I gotta spend my life. This is what the, you know, the parable of the, the one talent guy, he's just holding on to a spoon. But what if I told you in the kingdom of God, there's always a chair set at the table with your name on it? What if I told you in the kingdom of God, even if you run out of spoons, God's got forks and knives because steak was better eaten with forks and knives anyway? How would that change the way that you see everything? What if you dared to live, give and receive in a take and eat world? And I gotta tell you, this can happen for anybody, no matter how small you are or how little you have. In fact, I learned it in Lima, Peru when I went there with Compassion International. Compassion International is an organization that sets children free from poverty in Jesus' name. And I remember being there in Lima, Peru and going up to one of the kids' homes. I guess it was a home. It was really just a tent on the side of a hill. No running water, literally. Water had to be brought in from trunks, trucks and, and put into barrels, walked into their home, there's no beds, there's maybe cots that are being rolled up, and I remember sitting in the circle there, and the couple serving us pie. It had to be like a week's or a month's salary, and they were so happy for us to be in their home where they could host us. And it struck me, it's possible to have everything and have nothing at the same time. And it is possible to have nothing and have everything at the same time. A few years later, I heard a a woman named Nellie who had been a child at Compassion and got released from poverty. She was telling her story and she made this statement. She said, as Compassion started to enter her life, There were still moments where she was in poverty, but she made this statement, she says, I was still living in poverty, but poverty no longer lived in me. See, this is what Jesus is getting at in the teaching. He says, you can't serve God in money. He says, in other words, you're gonna see God through your finances or you're gonna see your finances through the lens of God, one or the way or the other. And if you have a tendency to see God through your finances, then you're never really gonna believe in abundance. You're gonna always be looking for spoons. You're gonna always be holding on to the spoon. And even though you don't live in poverty, the poverty will still live in you. But the invitation is a new kind of economy that's an abundance mentality that says, know what, I can give and receive and I can receive and give because God is the first giver and he's got more than enough so I can see my finances. I may not have anything in my bank account right now, but I can see my finances through the lens of God and he's a God of generosity and abundance. Guys, I gotta tell you, I struggle with this. I told you I was a business management major and I remember being in ministry for 10 years and I'm kind of like a kingdom entrepreneur kind of minister and so we're always leveraging everything for the next thing, for what God wants to do in the kingdom. I remember getting 10 years in and as a business major, I know you're supposed to have a 401k and you're supposed to have a retirement and all this kind of stuff and we're 10 years in and we don't got nothing and I'm looking at God saying, we're off plan. 
And now we're about 25 years in, but I remember about 10 years in, God spoke to me, it's something I've never gotten over. I hope it was God, I think it was God, I'm pretty sure it's God, it better be God, because I'm leveraged out here on it. He said, Dave, here's the deal, you're worried about all this stuff, but here's the deal. If you spend your life taking care of others, there will always be others to take care of you. But if you spend your life just trying to make sure you need others, then you'll have to pay for others to take care of you. So I know there's probably lots of people in this room that could tell you how to make money better than I can. Maybe even better than Jesus. But Jesus will teach you how to live a life where you don't have to die alone. That brings us to number four. I know I'm running out of time here, all right? So number four, a new community to be formed. As a new economy is invested in, it forms a new kind of community. In other words, here's what we're saying. Generosity builds community. Selfishness breaks community. No one has ever ended a friendship because someone was too generous to them. But every day, friendships are ending and business partnerships are ending, and marriages are ending because someone is too selfish. See, when the give-receive economy is engaged in, a new community is formed. This is what you see. Jesus comes, he's the first giver, John three sixteen. He comes to give his life, but as Jesus gives his life, there's a new community that's, in, that, 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 that's created called the church, and when we get to Acts 2 through Acts 4, this is a community where no one's in need because everyone's giving and receiving. In other words, Jesus knows security is not built on your social security. It's the kind of security that comes from living socially with others. It's not communism, but it's communal. It's a way of life that the give receive economy engages. And what you see in the church is that this give receive economy starts to live itself out in a take and eat world, which is by the way, why Jesus deals, or why God deals so harshly with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five, because they try and create a take and eat economy in the middle of the give receive economy. And God says, no, 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 that's not gonna happen. So there's a new community that emerges where people can live and, and no one's in, in need. And it's meant to stand in stark reality to the take and eat world that leads to isolation and aloneness. Finally, number five. So a different way of learning, a better way of living, a divergent economy to be invested in, a new community to be formed, and finally, a distinct kind of disciple that is necessary. In other words, what this parable reminds us of is that consumerism will never create disciples. If it's just about what I can get, you'll never become the disciple that Jesus wants you to be. Uh, for a new kingdom to be revealed, a new kind of disciple must be released. One who learns differently, who leads differently, who lives better, invests in the divergent economy, and through that creates a community that the world can't deny. See, all the government programs in the world can't chase the need 
And none of them will work if people aren't generous. And the church stands in contrast. The church should be the generous community that is solving problems in the economy because people are daring to live differently. What if in this room you raised business leaders up to create different kinds of businesses based on a give-receive economy? What if kingdom entrepreneurs said, we're gonna change the way we do business and dare to imagine a better world? What if the church was the incubator of the kind of community that demonstrated to the world there is a better way to live? But for that to happen, there's a different kind of disciple. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the idea of quiet quitting. Anyone heard of that idea today? Um, quiet quitting is something that's taken over many of our businesses, and it, it really came out as a reminder um, for those of us that maybe own businesses not to overwork our people. What they were saying is that as an employee, you need to act your wage, so don't work 80 hours for someone who's only paying you for 40 hours. Work for, for 40 hours. But really, what quiet quitting has become in our world, it, it's devolved into how do I do the least amount possible and still keep my job? And so people are quiet quitting, especially through the pandemic and stuff like that. How do I do the least amount possible but still be part of the organization? Here's a quick question as we get ready to leave today. How many of us are quiet quitting in our relationship with God? God, I wanna do the least amount. I wanna give the least amount. God, I wanna do the least amount so I can still be part of it and I can blame you if things go bad, but I don't really wanna give it all. Because here's the deal, generosity is not about what you have, it's about what you have left. What do you have left to give? All right, final picture, and we're out. Um, in our house, uh, in our kitchen, we have a stainless steel refrigerator. Anyone have a stainless steel refrigerator? And it is awesome right after you've wiped it off. But the moment that anyone touches it, there are fingerprints all over the refrigerator. And it drives my wife crazy. She can always tell who's been in the refrigerator by the fingerprints. She says, Dave, what are you doing in the refrigerator again? Frankie, what are you doing? Emma, Izzy. And whenever you touch it, man, it just leaves your fingerprints behind and you can see who is there. Here's the challenge today, guys. Here's, here's what kingdom economics is all about. What if you and I dared to live our life so generously that when we got done living our life, when we got done working at our businesses, when we got done with our families, it wasn't our fingerprints, but the fingerprints of God that got left by everything that we had touched. This is the invitation of kingdom economics, but it's gotta start somewhere. So why not with you in your business, in your family, why not become a different kind of learner? Why not enter into a better way of life? Invest in a divergent economy. See created a new kind of community that requires you to be a different kind of disciple. This is the invitation of Luke chapter 16. And as Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. So choose today what kind of economy you want to live in. I'm praying that you'll choose a kingdom one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that even in difficult passages of scripture, you reveal truth 
that even though it may shock us, can change us. And so God, what we see this guy stumble into today, I pray that we would step into as a church. And that as we do, the world would be shifted and changed from a new kind of disciple, a 5G disciple that is created here. We love you, Lord, in your name, amen.